0: I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep with a particular topic. And today, we'll talk about a new model for missionary work. You know, for hundreds of years, the model for missionary work has been that a missionary goes from one country, usually the United States or a Western European country, to another country in what used to be called the third world, or the developing world, or now perhaps the majority world. That model is still dominant, but some organizations are tilting that model on its side, at least a little bit. One of those organizations is the Timothy Initiative. If you subscribe to World Magazine or Christianity Today, you may have seen their ads, but I wanted to learn more, so I reached out to Jared Nelms. Jared is the CEO and Vice President of the Timothy Initiative. And we talk about the Timothy Initiative and its extraordinary growth, and whether old ways of reaching unreached people groups still work, or perhaps they've become obsolete. Well, Jared, welcome to the podcast. It's... um... Great to have you on. And, you know, I I got interested in the Timothy Initiative for a couple of reasons. Number one is that you guys, you know, in the grand scheme of missions organizations are relatively new. I think you were founded around 2007. Is that accurate? Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, when you look at a lot of missions organizations, some of them have been around 50 years, 100 years, 150 years. You know, the American Bible Society has been around for, you know, 250 years, it seems, or in that yeah about that 225 years so um the fact that you guys were new and then the second thing that caught my attention is just how much you've grown um especially in the last four or five years and so i you know wanted to have you on to talk about both of those um kind of um anomalies or aberrations or qualities of your organization the third thing that caught my attention is i've started seeing y'all's ads in various publications, Christianity Today, World Magazine, I think, and um, it strikes me that y'all's image or message or brand uh, is that, and and you don't say it this way. You're much more gentle and much more um, positive, but maybe there's something broken in the missions world right now, and that you guys have a new way of doing missions. Is that a fair way to characterize your message? I would
1: be hesitant to say, maybe that harshly. Uh, I think maybe what we would like to do is offer another way or an additional track for people that maybe they don't necessarily tend to consider.
0: Well, what is that additional way? How are you guys different from the traditional missions organization?
1: So I think coming from a an American or Western perspective, we have hundreds of years of kind of tradition in Rightfully so, we should be proud of the great efforts that the missionaries from the past hundreds of years have taken the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I think for probably the majority of churches in America, when you talk about world missions or fulfilling the Great Commission, the normative thinking is we need to send someone from our church to the nations. And while we would never Tell someone or question the calling that God has placed on their life. We would also say that God has raised up an indigenous church around the world that is equally called to the nations. And God has placed them in proximity to the unreached peoples and places uh, and equipped them with language and culture and skills that we don't possess. So there's also an opportunity to tap in and to mobilize. That harvest force, if you will.
0: Well, you know, Jared, uh, I think I came face to face with that reality myself personally about 25 years ago. I was working for a large accounting and consulting firm called Price Waterhouse Coopers. And um, the uh, the IT guy, the guy that would kind of come around when I had a computer problem and fix my computer, was a guy from India. His name was Danny Srinivasan and uh danny saw some things on my desk in my office that made him think that i was a christian and so we started talking about that about faith and about church and so on and i at one point i said well what about you danny i know you're from india are you a christian believer he said oh yeah my dad was a pastor my granddad was a pastor my great-granddad was a pastor they're all indian You know, they've all, in some ways, the fact that there is an indigenous church in places like India and China and elsewhere, testifies to the success of the missionary efforts of the 18th and 19th century. But it does also, you know, if we're not careful, we can forget that there are faithful believers there that have been faithful in the midst of great hardship in some cases for many decades, many generations, even centuries. Yeah, amen to that.
1: Even our international ministry director is from Asia, and he's a third-generation church planner missionary.
0: Again, you're not saying go is bad, that if God is calling someone to go from the United States, you would not say, no, don't do that. But you would say that in addition to that, there is maybe a more efficient way to Grow the church in other parts of the world, and that is to fund the people that are already on the ground there. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, and maybe to the to the ones going, I would never offer my opinion unless asked. But I think the role that they might want to look at assuming has changed from what it has been in the past. From most missionaries that I have encountered, tend to have more of a Pauline calling, if you will, or a Pauline desire. And I would say for the majority of going Western missionaries, a Barnabas role is a lot more appropriate in today's context.
0: So talk about that. The Pauline role would be to go to places where the gospel had not been heard, maybe maybe hard ground, and to proclaim the gospel uh plainly and clearly, the Barnabas role would be more one of supporting the churches that are already there, coming alongside, being a servant to them, putting yourself even in submission uh to them rather than being an overlord, so to speak. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, I was a missionary to Asia. And I know what it's like to feel called by God and to go to a foreign place. But I also entered a a country and a context where I already knew what I was going to do, even before I met anybody. (laughs) Uh, So I think there's there's an opportunity to show humility and grace that God has already raised up indigenous leaders who also have a heart for those peoples and places. And most people that I've encountered, when they see someone who has a genuine desire to help and a humility to be there, they're willing to help guide them along the way.
0: So, Jared, I want to pivot in our conversation just a little bit and talk about that thing which my mother told me not to talk about at the dinner table. And that is money, Uh, because, as I said in our setup uh, here, one of the things that has impressed me about your organization is that you've really grown Dramatically in the last few years. I mean, for one thing, you're you're fairly new. Uh two thousand seven till today is only what fifteen years. And uh, you know, so you've gone from zero to what what's your annual revenue going to be this year in round numbers? Fifteen, twenty million dollars? Yeah, last last year was twenty million roughly. Okay. So, I mean, that's tremendous growth. And a lot of that growth has come in the last four or five years. So uh, let me just pause there and say, what's causing that? Why have suddenly you guys grown so much?
1: Well, I wish I could outline a a five-step strategy of, of development and growth, but I think it really has to do with God just opening up doors and opportunities and the message and the model and the methodology seems to be really resonating with a lot of people. Yeah.
0: Well, and the model is, again, not to uh, have a missionary here that spends maybe six months or a year or more raising support. And, um, you know, and then that support that they've got to raise often, you know, because they're supporting an American in an American family, sometimes that support has to be 50, 75, $100,000 or even more before they could even go to the mission field. And then once they get to the mission field, they've got to learn the language. They've got to learn the culture. They're marginally effective probably for the first few years that you're there. That's the traditional sending model. What's your model? How is it different from that? So
1: we would be not a sending organization. We would be a training and equipping ministry so our primary involvement and investment is not in the salaries and support of individual people it's in the investment is in the training and equipping of leaders and it's all done in partnership with the local church so that changes the ability to scale uh, which comes back to your question of how have you seen such dynamic growth When you're not building buildings, when you're not uh, paying salaries of everyone that's a worker, it really opens the floodgates on the potential of people that can be trained. And when you don't only train pastors, when you train lay people, you kind of have a large potential workforce. Uh, And if, if you really believe, which we do every... Believer is called to be a disciple and every disciple is called to be a disciple maker. Then there's a lot of people that can be trained and equipped and mobilized. Uh, And if they're willing, uh, we can train them to be able Uh, because I think the primary calling of every believer is to be a disciple that makes disciples. Uh, And not everybody will plant a church, but a lot of people who are bivocational, who have never even dreamed of it, have the potential to do that.
0: Yeah, well, I get that and deeply resonate, um, especially after some of the writing and research that I've done over the past years uh, in, into this world, um, you know, has made plain to me that, that your model is both Biblical and prudent, especially in in this um, in this time, day, and age. However, one of the th- one of the potential flaws that I'd like for you to address a little bit, Jared, is How do you evaluate success? I mean, there are a lot of ministries that claim numbers, big numbers. You know, we we've trained thousands of people, or even tens of thousands of people. And, you know, sometimes I I wonder, I look at the American education system and see how many people that have been to college for 12 or high school for, you know, uh, school for 12 years and can't read, right? So my question is, just because they've been through your training, how do you know that they are trained? And um, what, what sort of, um, I guess you could say, follow-up and or evaluation do you do to make sure that Um, you're doing things that will allow you to tell a big story back here in the United States, but it didn't actually make it a difference on the ground in the countries that you're working in? Sure.
1: That's a great question. I think probably the way I would answer it is in our philosophy of ministry, where we don't do training for ministry, we do training in ministry. So the question, and we learned this along the way, we didn't start out that way. Initially, we had a one year model, and we would find out at the end of one year of training if someone's going to do something or not. And based on the learnings that we had and uh, all of the different approaches to disciple making and church planning out there, we realized uh, training in ministry is much more effective. in having a filter that acts relatively quickly in the early parts of the training will help identify if that training is going to result in anything where there's fruit that remains.
0: When you say training in ministry rather than training for ministry, in other words, you mostly work with people that, that are already doing something in ministry and you're coming alongside them to make them more effective, or when they come to you, you tell them, yes, you can participate in our training, but you've, you've got to actually start applying it immediately and we want a feedback loop going on what i mean is it one or both or it's the latter
1: of those we have we have created a a 4 month filtering course we call disciples making disciples and it's a 16 week training and guess what the outcome of disciples making disciples is it's you actually go and you make disciples mm. so you learn how to share your story in the class, but then the same day or the same week, you're out practicing and doing it. So all of the, the skills, there's a, there's a model assist, watch and leave approach and a, and a training is for trainers mentality. So what you're trained to do, you need to go and do. Then as you're doing it, you train others also. So you don't have to go very long to identify who's there to listen and learn and internalize versus who's going to do all those things, plus put it into action. And at the end of those first four months of training, we make a, a split. And we say, for those who are have been actively engaged in the ministry, and you're out seeing all of these things happening, you're practicing, uh, you're putting your faith into action. Uh, your training continues. Those of you who basically just come and listen and learn, we have finished the training. So your your time here is done. It's not a negative. It's just that's the end of the training for you. Right. Uh, so it's it's really helped us invest in the faithful few as opposed to trying to convince everybody of something they're not willing to do.
0: Well, say a little bit more about the faithful few. How many people, say, in a month or a year or in a whatever, or once some period, are going through your training?
1: Uh, I think right now we've got about 75,000 what we call Timothys who are going through the training in about 30 or 35 countries. So usually those are filtered down from probably – you could probably multiply that number by 10 to see who actually started and who remains. Yeah. So that's, that's probably a good number. It's really hard to predict faithfulness. We don't control the fruitfulness, but we can control our faithfulness mm. and, and we would characterize that by putting together what you know into obedience and then training others. So it's kind of a three-legged stool for us. What you know you have to do, and what you do, you have to train others to do the same, or it stops with you.
0: Talk to me a little bit about both your training and who goes through the training. In other words, you, you're doing it for four months. Uh, if I've got a full-time job, can I go through this training? Uh, I mean, is this evenings and weekends, and, uh, or is it pulling pastors away from their church for four months?
1: No, the, actually the, the training is church based led by the local pastor and it's done with the local believers in the church. That's where it starts. So most, I would say 99% of all the people in training are bivocational in the sense they have a full-time job. So this is done on the weekends and the evenings in a time and a place where they're going to prioritize Uh, being trained and equipped to be a disciple that makes disciples. And we really don't even get into the the conversation of church planting until you're an active disciple maker. So most carpenters and teachers and electricians, if you tell them you can be a church planter, that's very overwhelming and scary. But if you say it's our primary calling to be a disciple maker and we're going to train you how that resonates with them. And those that are willing are able to do it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Jared, I'm going to pivot one more time back to the money question just a little bit. So again, the traditional um, missionary organization is that, you know, I feel called uh, to be a missionary. If I'm part of a denomination, I might go to my denomination's mission sending organization. There might be a you know a, a vetting process, a vocational discernment process, whatever it might be. But often there's not even that or very little of that. I mean if I if I'm willing to raise a hundred grand and bring that to a mission sending organization, they're liable just to say Hey, yeah, hundred grand is great. What does your model look like? Do you guys raise support? Do you uh, do you have missionaries that you that you send at all, or is it something different?
1: I would say we have a hybrid approach. There's there's a lot of people on our on our team, both here in the U.S. and, and globally, who have friends and family and relatives who are going to support them no matter what they do. And whatever logo is on your t-shirt, they're going to support you. So we encourage those people, if you're able to raise support for the efforts that God is calling you to, go for it. And other staff are not able to do that or are not interested to do that. And that's okay, too. So we don't send people from one country to another country in, in the sense of we're sending you there to go and do ministry. Uh, we have done some proximate engagement strategies of certain unengaged unreached people groups, but that's been done with Indigenous people in that country. So we always are sharing the list of the unreached people groups and, and places and casting the vision to the local leaders. And from time to time, we have people who say, uh, I know this people group, they're they're part of my mother's tribe or Uh, i'm part of this cast or whatever it may be and we've done some short-term stints in that sense but the goal is always get the local indigenous people at the forefront and at the center of the church and train and equip them so they can take it forward
0: well jared uh again to kind of come back uh, to end where we began uh i mentioned that you guys were founded in 2007 and as recently as you know 5 or 6 years ago you guys were you know at around 3 million dollars in revenue uh from now, and now you're at 20 million dollars in revenue i mean that's that's why like it took you 10 a decade to get to the first 3 million and then all of a sudden Boom, in the next five years, you you know more than five hundred percent growth, six hundred percent growth in that period of time. What's the future? I mean, do you expect that growth to continue? Are you guys on sort of a, a geometric curve because you figured out how to scale this thing, or are you going to go a little more slowly and deliberately into the future?
1: I've done some research over the past few years, and I have unfortunately found that in the missions world, church planting and the support of indigenous disciple making and church planning is unfortunately on the bottom rung of the mission's ladder. And I feel a calling to change that. And it's not to take anything from any other ministry or any other Christian industry, if you will. It's to say that we have a great opportunity to go after getting the gospel to every people in every place. We have a way to measure our progress. We have a way more than ever in human history to see every people in every place reached. Uh, And for so long, missions has focused on the already engaged and the already reached places. And the overwhelming amount of money goes to reach people groups and reached places. So I think... There is a desire to raise the tides of all of the groups like ours who are working with the indigenous doing disciple making and church planning. Uh, but I would say we don't have any ambitions of world domination. We just want to stay as closely to the spirit of God as possible. So as more opportunities come, we want to be faithful with those, uh, faithful in the small and faithful in the big. So it's not just an, a never ending. Desire for more and and bigger is better. We want to pair quality with the quantity.
0: Right. Great. Well, Jared, I pray that um, that will, in fact, be the case. And, um, you know, God bless you and the work that you've done so far. Thanks for being on the program today. It's been really helpful. I've been, like I say, fascinated by um, what I've been seeing out of you guys for the last year or so. And uh, it's just been a real pleasure to get to meet you and, and get to know you a little bit and to hear some of your heart for this ministry. Thank you. You've been listening in on my conversation with Jared Nelms of the Timothy Initiative. You can find out more about the Timothy Initiative by going to their website, which is ttionline.org. Before we go, a couple of quick updates. I want to remind you that our thank you gift for the month of April is Randy Alcorn's classic book on stewardship, Managing God's Money. We think this is a book every Christian should have in his or her library, and that's why we'll send it to you as a thank-you gift for your donation of any size to Ministry Watch during the month of April. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the Donate tab at the top of the page. There are still a few days left on this offer, but it does end on Saturday, April 30th, so please act soon if you want to take advantage of this special offer and if money's a little tight right now hey I get it you know I've been there a couple of times myself you can still help this program though just rate us on your podcast app the more ratings we get the higher we rank with search engines and that means other people can find us more easily rating us just takes a second or two doesn't cost you a dime it's a free easy and I should add important way that you can support The Ministry Watch Podcast. The producers for today's program are Rich Roswell and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sutton. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.